Uh, in my experience, PA is a lot less toxic than um, very effective and useful medications like uh, nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, for example, NSAIDs like ibuprofen or aspirin, which are terrific, terrific drugs, but they carry a lot of uh, side effects, gastrointestinal uh, being a renal, kidney being, being well-known ones. Uh, and the same is not true for PEA. It may not be as effective as ibuprofen, but is uh, certainly a lot less toxic than ibuprofen is. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi everyone, welcome to Metagenics Institute podcast. My name is Nathan Rose, I'm the host today. And with me today from California is Professor Danielle Pomielli. Good morning or good afternoon, Professor Pomielli. And good morning to you. <laughs> Thank you for joining me. So um, today we're here to talk about the endocannabinoid system and also parmentyl ethanolamide or PEA. And you've been a, a pioneering researcher in this area for, for many decades. So I'm really thrilled to have, have managed. You've agreed to come onto the podcast for us today. Uh, so perhaps you can just give us a bit of a, a background of your, uh, a bit of a um, outline of your background. Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Daniel Piomelli. I am a professor at uh, the University of California, Irvine. I've been here for over two decades now. And... Uh, my work is uh, and has been for the last 20 years focused on the endogenous cannabinoid system. We in the lab study how these uh, endogenous molecules are produced, how they are deactivated, and we also f try and find ways to uh, interfere with their uh, biological actions so that we understand better how the system works and also hopefully uh, identify, discover new medications. Um, as part of my work also, we um, have worked on, um, on cannabis proper, on the cannabis plant, and particularly on DHC. Brilliant. Yeah, it's a, a long career, and I'm sure it will continue on um, with many great discoveries. So first of all, I wanted to dive into, yeah, we're here primarily to talk about uh, PEA, but I wanted to dive into, put it into context, first of all. Um, with the endocannabinoid system. Now it's a really, um, as I'm quickly learning that it's <laughs> that it's a very, very complex system and uh, potentially the early players were identified, but it's really expanded from there uh, to the point where there's this uh, term being coined, the endocannabidiome, ca cannabinoid diome, if I can <laughs> um, express that one out properly. So, um, before we get into that, perhaps, can you try and explain what the endocannabinoid system is in terms of how it helps maintain homeostasis? Yeah, so the uh, endocannabinoid system is constituted by a number of elements that they are the molecules themselves that uh, activate the uh, cannabinoid receptors plus all the proteins and enzymes that produce those molecules, degrade those molecules, and transport those molecules. And this is a system that basically is hijacked by tetrahydrocannabinol, THC, in cannabis that uses it, but it, of course is a system that has evolved to uh, serve a number of quite important physiological functions that are not only uh, neural in nature, not just neurological or psychiatric in nature, but also outside the brain and outside the spinal cord in a variety of uh, organ systems of the body, where we have both the cannabinoid receptors and the uh, compounds, the molecules that uh, activate them. So when you talk about um, the role of the endocannabinoid system in uh, homeostasis, we have to first appreciate what homeostasis is about. So homeostasis is uh, 
a set of checks and balances that evolution has created for the organism of all living creatures, animals and plants to stay in a sort of a fixed but dynamic state. So when we just uh, hang in there, you know, we are, uh, you know, breathing, uh, you know, and, uh, and breathing in, breathing out and moving around. And, you know, that is due to the fact that uh, there is homeostasis. So the, you know, health doesn't break loose because the, the body is holding it together. So that seems like natural to us, but actually it comes with, uh, from, it's a result of a, of a myriad of chemical reactions that occur throughout the body chemical reaction, biochemical reaction, physiological responses that occur throughout the body. So the endocannabinoid system is very important in maintaining homeostasis, by far not the only signaling system involved in homeostasis. There are many, if not the majority of the systems, biological systems are part of homeostasis. But the endocannabinoids are particularly important because they are typically produced when we need them where we need them and to achieve a specific purpose which is to bring us bring a particular function to its uh, uh, normality if you wish so for example in the brain when uh, we have excessive excitatory activity so neurons that excite and other neurons become a little bit overactive the endocannabinoid system comes in and uh, and curbs that, brings that down a notch. So that is uh, what happens in the brain where we can actually uh, expand that even further. For example, uh, under conditions of uh, high stress, the endocannabinoid system comes into play again to help us cope with the, you know, the stressful situation and making us more resilient to it, more able to resist to it. Uh, and in the, the vasculature, it, you know, stimulate that cause vasoconstriction, for example, so that decrease the size of a blood vessel uh, will stimulate also the production of endocannabinoids, which then go ahead and do the opposite thing, again, maintaining a balance. So life is all about balances, right? And the endocannabinoids are one of the mechanism that uh, uh, helps regulate balance. Yeah, it sounds like a, an amazing um, fine-tuning system, perhaps, and it seems to, I think someone described it, it's been perhaps sitting on, in, in plain sight for a long period of time. It's only really being um, better understood. So um, I just wanted to step through some of the, the key players in the um, endocannabinoid system. Um, so firstly, there was the uh, anandamide and 2-AG and the CB1 and CB2 receptors. But since then, there's been a whole host of other players that have been recognized. But um, maybe perhaps first, can we just give it an overview on um, the quote-unquote the classical endocannabinoids and their receptors, and, um, and then we can maybe touch upon some of the other ones. Yeah, so by definition, an endocannabinoid is an endogenous agent, endogenous molecule, that binds to our own cannabinoid receptors. That's hence the name endocannabinoid. And those are actually not very many molecules. It's a, a, a surprisingly large number because you know we only have two cannabinoid receptors. We have at least as many endocannabinoids, which is curious in a sense because many transmitters like serotonin or dopamine have multiple receptors. In this case, we have Mm. two receptors for two ligands. But around each of these ligands, there is a small group of other ligands that can also activate the cannabinoid receptor. So let me be a little bit more technical here. So anandamide is the name of the of one, the first one to be identified of the endocannabinoids. The other is called chemically 2 glycerol, and we call it 2-AG for short. So they, they're similar molecules. They're similar to one another. Interestingly, they are not similar to THC at all, but they are similar to one another, but they have some differences. So one is called a class of chemicals called amides, and the other one is a class of chemicals called esters. So around each of these molecules, there are other molecules that are similar in chemical structure, but differ in that they do not bind 
to cannabinoid receptors. Unlike an anamide, N2AG, they don't bind to cannabinoid receptors. And to this class of endocannabinoid-like molecules, they don't buy cannabinoid, bind cannabinoid receptors. We, I like to give the name paracannabinoids, um. and um, they, um, they include palmitylithanolamide, which is PEA, the compound you're most interested in, but also orylithanolamide, OEA, on the side of the amides and on the side of the esters, for example, 2-aluylglycerol or 2-OG, which doesn't bind to cannabinoid receptors but has its own, its own activities. So the point I'm trying to make here is that we shouldn't make a confusion between the chemical similarities and the functional similarities. And anabidin 2-AG are functionally similar because they both bind cannabinoid receptors. They are chemically different and they each belong to a class of molecules that can have additional biological activities. They're similar to, to an anamide, similar to 2-AG, and they have additional biological activities that are related to those of an anamide in 2-AG, but they're not mediated by cannabinoid receptors. If it sounds complex, it's because mm -hmm. it is complex. Unfortunately, this is what uh, uh, nature often often does. Uh, you know, it gives us a lot of uh, a lot of uh, things to uh, to think about. Um, and the discovery of these um, paracannabinoids, these molecules that look like endocannabinoids but are not able to activate cannabinoid receptors. The discovery of these paracannabinoids sometimes has even predated the discovery of the endocannabinoids proper. Only now that we know about the endocannabinoids that we have started now to understand the, uh, the physiology of these molecules, only now we can put those other molecules into their proper place. And I'm sure that as we work on this area, we will make a lot more exciting and surprising discoveries moving forward. Yeah, fascinating. Um, yeah, and we'll get to PEA. I think the, the history sort of predates the um, the understanding of the, the CB1 and CB2 receptors. So just quickly, what are some of the other um, uh, paracannabinoid-like ligands and, or more importantly, the receptors? There's other G-protein-coupled um, receptors and ion channels and nuclear receptors that sort of fall under that, the banner of the endocannabinoid diome. Right. You know, the um, um, couple of examples... 2-oleoglycerol, which is similar to, an, to, to 2-AG, but does not bind CB1 receptors, is a ligand, so it's an agonist ligand, so it's an activator of uh, a G-protein coupled receptor called GPR119. Um, similarly, oleolithanolamide, which is similar in structure to 2-OG, but different enough to have <laughs> also a different name, um, oleolithanolamide, can also bind GPR119. But in addition to uh, other G protein coupled receptors, these paracannabinoids are also able to activate other sorts of receptor systems, particularly they are very uh, powerful agonist ligands for the receptor PPAR alpha. PPAR alpha stands for peroxisome proliferated activated receptor. Type alpha, it's a mouthful, but it's a nuclear receptor, which means that it's a receptor that normally sits in the cytosol of the cells and transfers to the nucleus upon binding its ligand. And when it goes into the nucleus, it binds to uh, DNA sequences. There are some recognition elements on the DNA. And upon binding to these recognition elements, it triggers the uh, expression of, I mean, of course, the, tran uh, the transcription and then eventually translation, so the expression of proteins involved in a variety of, uh, of biological roles, biological functions. So we should not just look at G-brain coupled receptors as important mediators of this class of molecules, but also nuclear receptors. And in fact, uh, there are other um, members of this paracannabinoid family that bind to other nuclear receptors. There are also another type of receptors that are all uh, they are potentially uh, it's a little bit more controversial, but potentially activated by these molecules, and they are ion channels. 
So these are receptor channels that recognize a ligand and open, allowing the flux of uh, ions like sodium or calcium. And that typically leads to an excitation of the cell in which the receptor is located. And the famous family uh, of receptors is the vanilloid, the fam famous such receptor is the vanilloid receptor. It gets its name from the fact that it, uh, uh, it binds molecules with uh, a chemical vanilloid nucleus, not vanilla. Vanilla mm -hmm. is some, something else. Uh, but something called capsaicin, which is the active principle in red hot chili peppers. And the OEA, for example, is a fairly good ligand for the vanilloid receptor. Vanilloid receptors now go by a different name, TRPV1, TRPV1, but I think vanilloid is a little bit more palatable to a general audience. <laughs> and uh, so OEA is a good ligand for, uh, for TRPV1. So under certain circumstances, it can uh, activate this receptor and cause excitation. But OEA is also an excellent, even much better ligand for PPAR alpha. So uh, the majority of the actions of OEA are not mediated by TRPV1, but they are mediated rather by PPAR alpha. PA uh, is also a good ligand for PPAR alpha, not as good as OEA, but pretty good. Um, some papers, or one or two papers, suggest that it binds to TRPV1, but uh, in my experience, that is uh, probably not physiologically relevant. Right. Okay. Um, so, just briefly, some researchers discussed the one of the, the, the challenges with looking at this um, system is the the promiscuity of these ligands on the receptors. Um, it's not the seemingly the classic. One, one key for one lock and it's one perfect key um, but they seem to modulate and activate uh, a host of different receptors at different sort of um, affinities is I suppose my question is how do you feel about that view what's your I suppose view on this uh, this network pharmacology concept with the endocannabinoid system and is that why it's so complex well I think that promiscuity has been overrated um, I think there is always some fuzziness in biology. Yep. There is always some overlap. No molecule does one thing only. But I think when it comes to this class of molecules, promiscuity has been overrated for whatever reason. Uh, and we can, you know, we can easily ascertain that. For example, if you give a compound like OEA to animals, one of the most um, striking effects you have is that OEA inhibits food intake. It does so very effectively, very potently, and for a very long time um, at very low doses. So if you do that in an animal that does not have PPAR alpha, nothing happens. Right. If you inject OEA in an animal that uh, does not have PPAR alpha, nothing happens to the animal. If you inject OEA in an animal that does not have 3P1, you have exactly the same responses in a wild-type animal. So these are the yes. type of data that we we use to determine whether there is promiscuity or not. In this case, we can say as far as the OEA response on feeding behavior, there is no promiscuity. The effect is entirely mediated by PPAR alpha. And this is not to say that there are no conditions where OEA can bind to 3P1. There are. For example, if you inject OEA under the skin, it will produce a little bit of an itching or, or painful response. That response is still there in animals that don't have PPAR alpha, right. but this appears in animals that don't have 3P1. So when we talk about promiscuity, what we are just saying is that the same molecule can interact with one or more receptor systems, but in reality, in physiology, that is very restricted, is limited to a particular response. So we shouldn't um, be overly, uh, how can I say this, taken aback and say, oh my God, it's too complicated for us to understand. Mm. It is actually, if one applies logic and good pharmacological or genetic tools, it is actually fairly clear that certain receptors are activated by certain ligands to produce a certain response. In the case of an anamide in 2AG, for example, 
I think we can say with almost complete certainty that the overwhelming majority of their biological effects are mediated by cannabinoid receptors. There are two subtypes, CB1 and CB2. They have different structure, different localization, but they both bind to THC and they both bind to an anamide and to a G. They prefer, you know, one CB2 prefers to a G over an anamide, but still binds both. And, you know, if you remove those receptors, I would say that the vast majority, if not the totality of the, of the effects of these molecules disappears, unless you go to very extreme condition, extreme situations. And then we're not talking about physiology anymore, we're mm. talking about pharmacology. Let's say that I give a very high dose of an anamide as a bolus injection uh, in, you know, intravenous bolus injection, and I have a heart response. That particular response, so there is a, a vagal reflex and there is a decrease in heart rate. Yes. And that particular response is not a cannabinoid response. It's blocked in animals that don't have the vanilloid receptor, 3 p one And that's a that's a 3P1 mediated response produced by an anamide. However, the heart will never see a bolus of, uh, you know, hundreds of nanograms, if not micrograms of anandamide in any given time. Uh, the heart will see very little anandamide at any given time because anandamide levels are very low uh, and they're particularly low outside the brain. So in terms of physiology, uh, that I think, you know, is probably an irrelevant response. Yeah, sure. Oh, well, that's great. It's, it's cleared up that confusion about the promiscuity. Um, I'll just quickly touch upon uh, the endocannabinoid deficiency. So this is, I think, championed by Ethan, Dr. Ethan Russo, um, the idea that these endocannabinoids are, are deficient in, in some disease states. I think the challenge, and I'm sure you can correct me, is um, measuring these, these seemingly uh, fleeting molecules and, you know, uh, correlating with disease. So... Um, What's your view or the, the science state on, are there, I suppose, well-determined diseases that have uh, uh, overt deficiencies, quote-unquote, in um, endocannabinoids? So the endocannabinoid deficiency um, idea is a very interesting construct, and I think it's a valuable construct in that um, it allows us to think um, in, in, in a certain way that, hopefully can generate new discoveries, but it shouldn't be considered as a, as a pathological or, mm. or nosological construct. It's not that it's a disease. It's not that it's something that we can uh, write about. Uh, it's not that it's something that we know exists, like there is, I don't know, schizophrenia or, uh, or Tourette syndrome. It is a... Um, as I said, it is a heuristic tool. And the point that, it, that the tool makes is that there are conditions under which this homeostatic mechanism that is underpinned by the endocannabinoid complex, this homeostatic mechanism is faulty. And as a result of that, the organism falls in a state of pathology. And as a result of that, because that faultiness in endocannabinoid signaling is at the basis of the pathology, one could also surmise then correcting it, correcting the endocannabinoid system might correct the pathology. Again, that's a very valuable, I think, uh, idea. And uh, strategy, but it's not, it's not a disease condition that we can we can diagnose in, in people sure. like, you know, taking their blood, measuring uh, levels of, say, an anamide or 2AG in circulation and saying, okay, your anamide levels are low, so you need to, to need to use, I don't know, cannabis. Uh, that is certainly not something that we are in a position of doing. However, it's very possible that, you know, in a specific organ, in a specific, for example, region of the brain, there might be a defect in endocannabinoid signaling that uh, underpins, for example, an excessive excitation. Uh, and, uh, and that might be corrected 
with an appropriate medication that boosts the endocannabinoid system. We're not there yet, however. So I want to warn listeners that uh, this is more of a research agenda than uh, an established syndrome, uh, the type you find in uh, medical in medical textbooks. Yeah, sure. That makes complete sense. All right, we'll um, watch it unfold, hopefully. Okay, well, let's move on to the main um, bulk of the, the discussion is uh, PEA, and you've been um, researching this for a long period of time, and it, as we just mentioned, learned, it's, I suppose, part of the, the paracannabinoid para system, so um, which is different, obviously, from, from cannabis, but has maybe similar therapeutic effects in terms of pain, etc. So um, perhaps maybe just start off with the... The history, uh, it's got a, quite a, a, a unique history of the discovery and its um, clinical use. PA is a fascinating molecule with a fascinating history. Uh, it was discovered back uh, during World War II in the 1940s. Um, people were desperate to um, uh, find medications that were easily available that didn't have to be manufactured of course in the middle of a war there's all sort of problems so they discovered that egg yolk has got anti-inflammatory properties and scientists you know how they are they have when they see something like this they start you know asking questions so they started extracting egg yolk and they discovered that egg yolk contained this chemical palmitoylethanolamide that uh, they didn't know about before. At the time, it was a novel lipid. Lipid means fat-like molecule. And just a few years later, someone made palmitoylethanolamide in the lab and administered to animals and found that actually is responsible for the anti-inflammatory effects of egg yolk. That became immediately quite interesting to some people and uh, they started testing it in animals. In 1960s, there are a few papers here and there showing that a PA is a very effective anti-inflammatory molecule. So they didn't know how it worked, but was pretty effective. And then in, the, in Czechoslovakia, which is the name that was given to the two countries of the Czech Republic and the Slovak Republic, uh, when the... Uh, uh, where the, United, where the Soviet Union was still in existence and they were part of the Eastern Bloc. In Czechoslovakia, a company by the name of Spufa Pharmaceuticals made PEA and tested it in people and found that indeed these anti-inflammatory and antiviral in, uh, in large clinical studies, very well conducted for the times, we're talking about the 1970s, quite well conducted with a large number of, uh, of subjects, thousands of subjects, finding this quite remarkable antiviral and anti-inflammatory effects. Then it was forgotten. It was completely forgotten. And it was, um, in a sense, quote-unquote, rediscovered when anandamide was discovered, because anandamide bears a very, very close similarity to PEA. They are chemically, they belong to the same class of molecules, they have differences, of course. I remind you, PA does not bind to the cannabinoid receptors. Anandamide does. And the, re the reason for that is because there are enough chemical differences that don't allow anandamide uh, to, bi to bind P-bar-alpha and don't allow PA to bind CB1, the cannabinoid receptors. But they're part of the same molecule. So when anandamide was rediscovered, the same class, when anandamide was rediscovered, people started to went back to PA and said, well, okay, we're going to use PA as a quote-unquote control for anandamide since they are so similar. But anandamide, uh, but you know, not identical. We can use. You can see how selective is anandamide at doing certain things. And in fact, you know, when Rafi Meshulam and Bill Devane discovered anandamide back in two thousand, sorry, back in, uh, in 1992, 19, yeah, December nineteen ninety-two, when they uh, discovered that they used PA to show that PA did not bind to the cannabinoid receptors, whereas anandamide did. Was that sort of a, a way of being, you know, critical and selective? And so we did, you know, we did the same thing. Back in, in uh, 98, I believe, we uh, 
demonstrated that enema is a very powerful analgesic when applied in the periphery of the body, so not in the brain, outside the brain, in, you know, in end organs like the paw, for example. And we were looking for a control, and we used the PA as a control. And mm -hmm. lo and behold, very much to our surprise, PA was just as effective as an enamide was at producing wow. pain relief. It took us several years to understand, and a lot of luck to understand, that actually the effect of PA had nothing to do with cannabinoid receptors. PA was producing that effect by activating the PPAR alpha nuclear receptor and, uh, and nothing to do with activation of CB1. But it's interesting that both molecules are endogenous, they're both produced mm. body. They are often found in the same cell systems. They produce, in this regard, similar effects, not in all regard, but in, with respect to pain and inflammation, they're fairly, they're both anti, they're both analgesic and largely anti-inflammatory, at least the PA and enamide a little bit less. But they work on different receptors. So they're kind of a double whammy, they work together to produce an effect acting on different mechanisms, which makes their effect a lot stronger, a lot, lot more efficacious. Um, it took us uh, until 2005, uh, well, actually in 2003, we discovered that OEA, which is also similar to an enamide PEA, activates PPAR alpha. And in 2005, when my student, Jess Laverm, discovered that uh, PA also activates PPAR-alpha. And then after that, um, I would say probably 90% of the papers uh, confirmed that uh, the vast majority, if not the totality of the effects of PEA are mediated by PPAR-alpha. As I said before, some of the effects of OEA are mediated by GPR-119, a few, really a handful, and another handful, a very small number, is by TRIPV1. But with PEA, Neither us nor others have been able to see activation of GPR-119 or activation sure. of, uh, uh, of, uh, of TRIP-P1. So there is a one, I mean, a few papers suggesting activation of another receptor called GPR-55 for PEA, but, but uh, um, GPR-55 is a receptor that binds almost anything you know, everything that walks, everything right. that... Around. So it's a little bit of a promiscuous receptor. So I don't know, again, how physiologically relevant that is. Interesting. Um, had, I always thought um, PPAR-alpha um, as, like, um, help with metabolism, appetite, etc., similar to, or obviously, like, how OEA is acting. So um, how is it that OEA is acting on PPAR and, and giving um, seemingly very different results in the phenotype than um, PEA? So PPAR-alpha is a group, it's part of a group of receptors called PPARs. There are, there's alpha, there is gamma, and there is delta. For some reason, they forgot beta. <laughs> but, uh, well, actually, delta used to be called beta. And they are ubiquitous receptors. So they are everywhere in the body, pretty much. And they regulate cellular metabolism. So. When we talk about metabolism, we need to distinguish between systemic right. metabolism and cellular metabolism. They're very strongly connected, of course, but systemic metabolism is what we usually refer to as, you know, metabolic. So when we say metabolic sure. disease, we are talking about a metabolism that affects, I don't know, the liver, the, you know, the white adipose tissue. Uh, but every single cell has to perform metabolism. Every single cell has a Krebs cycle. Every single cell is a glycolysis. Every single cell has mitochondrial respiration. So, and pretty much every single cell has an NM, as sort of OEA and, and PEA. Um, what OEA does, it does uh, pretty much, um, does different things in different organ systems. So is a quintessential local messenger. It's not a hormone. So when you think about a hormone, you think about something that is produced in a particular part of the body, a gland is released into the circulation and act on yes. some other part of the body, right? An end organ of sorts. But that's not the way OEA works. OEA is produced where it acts. So if it is produced in the liver, it will act in the liver. 
it is, if it is produced in the intestines, in the duodenum or the jejunum, that's where it will act. So we need to distinguish this. So let's see what happens in the, the, in the duodenum and the jejunum. This is work that <clears throat> really spans almost, almost a decade and a half, where we found that OEA regulates feeding, but it regulates feeding in a very special way. So AEA is produced in the upper small intestine, so the duodenum and the jejunum, in the cell lining the actual intestinal cavity, so those are the enterocytes, and OEA is produced there, and it is produced when we digest fats containing oleic acid. So whenever we eat some fat-containing food, and basically all foods contain fat, they also, these foods also contain oleic acid. It's a very abundant component of food. And oleic acid gets incorporated into the enterocyte, and the enterocyte transforms it into OEA. So right. OEA activates PPAR alpha, where we do not know for sure, maybe in the enterocyte itself, maybe in uh, the adjacent sensory nerves, because mm. under the, the intestinal lining, we have a whole forest of, uh, of uh, sensory fibers that are sitting there listening to what we eat feeling what we eat, right? And OEA is able to activate a subset of those fibers. Again, there is a little bit of controversy as to which one it is in particular, in particular uh, if it's the vagus, if it's the, some other, if it's C fibers or A delta fibers or some other form of, some other fiber, but some fiber gets activated and the signal gets uh, transferred to the uh, the brain stem and then from the brain stem uh, into the forebrain so the upper part of the of the brain and uh, it is read as a stop signal for eating so the brain uh, when it is activated uh, when this pathway is activated stops eating and uh, signals to stop eating so OEA is a satiety factor because it is produced when we eat a lot of fatty foods and that suggests that we need to stop eating. Let me tell you why that is important. Because when we eat a very, uh, if uh, foods are rich in, in fat, we need to absorb the fat. And fat is very slowly absorbed by the intestine. So if we eat fat and we do not absorb and we don't absorb it, we really are not eating. We are not there is no point in eating, right? So the, what this system does, it uh, uh, it does not really stop the eating. What it does, it sends a signal that uh, after the meal prolongs the interval to the next right. meal. So it's not that it stops you from finishing your hamburger, but it uh, m makes the interval between that hamburger and your next hamburger longer. And so that gives your intestine the time to digest the fat and absorb the fat properly. So in our modern world, <coughs> excuse me, that of course is not such a good thing because you would like mm. not to eat the many hamburgers, but mm. in real life, in the life outside the modern world, when we for hundreds of thousands of years were hunter-gatherers, you know, finding something with fat was rare. And yes. Once you had a good fat meal, you wanted to make sure to absorb all of it. And that's not just for us. It's true for any mammal, any omnivorous mammal. We all have uh, this, this problem. So this is what OEA does in the intestine. And uh, if we go and look in other tissues, it's a different story. For example, in white adipose tissue, which is where we accumulate all the fat that we eat, right? It goes in there. 
and stays there until we need it. In white adipose tissue, OEA, of course, is not stimulate, it's not blocking food intake because that's, you know, it's got nothing to do with food intake, right? But what it does, it stimulates the use of, of fat. So in order for yeah. us to use fat that is stored in white adipose tissue, we need to release it from the white adipose tissue into the circulation and it has to go to tissues like muscle or liver that can burn it, right? Because white adipose tissue is a storage tissue. It's, it, can, it can burn it a little bit, but not as much. And that's what OEA does. OEA favors this process of lipolysis. Lipolysis is a process whereby the stored fat gets hydrolyzed or cleaved into smaller elements fatty acids and glycerol, which now travel to the end organs where they are utilized as fat, as food, as fuel. And if you move from fat to some other tissue, you have a different function. So again, OEA, but like PEA as well, and aninomide, they're very restricted in the, lay, in the place where they, where they act. And sometimes they can have different functions different actions in different places but this does not mean that there is no logic fascinating okay um there is a logic really to it because yes. the overarching logic of oea of pea and anandamide is evident when you look at all the different tissues and you say oh okay so oea does this in this tissue that in the tissue that in the other tissue but together all this is to optimize our consumption, our utilization of fuel. And that is the, the important message because OEA, just like an anamide, is a very homeostatic mechanism. It helps us optimize the fuel that we have, that we incorporate as food. Yes, fascinating. All right, so then back to PEA, it's working on PEPA, alpha, uh, so where does that typically work? Is it immune cells? So how does that translate into mediating analgesic or anti-inflammatory effects? This is an area where I wish more people were active because um, right. PEA is acquiring a lot of interest, is getting a lot of interest these days because especially in Europe, I'm not sure about Australia, but I, I, I know for, for sure that in Europe is fairly broadly used as a anti-inflammatory and analgesic molecule. But some basic questions about PEA remain, uh, remain unanswered. The, so what we do know is that PEA binds to PPR-alpha, activates PPR-alpha, produces analgesia and anti-inflammation by activating PPR-alpha. That, I think, is um, established. Again, there is maybe a handful of other mechanisms at play, but 90, 95% of what we see with PEA is mediated by PPR-alpha. The problem is in understanding exactly the physiological perspective, how this happens. One thing that we think we know, and I'm not sure that the, the judge, uh, sorry, the, the, the jury is already out on all of it, but uh, one mechanism through which it works is a little bit odd because it's uh, a, a somewhat counterintuitive. And it's a mechanism we discovered uh, now more than 10 years ago when we found that, very much to our surprise, during inflammation, the levels of PEA in macrophages, for example, or other in, in inflammatory cells, immune cells, the levels of PA, when these cells are stimulated by inflammatory stimuli, don't increase as we were expecting, mm. but decrease. Right. And they decrease actually massively and fairly quickly. In fact, we could show that as the inflammation proceeded, the levels of this molecule PEA decreased hand in hand. There was a very much of an anti-parallel uh, relation between inflammation and decreasing PEA levels. 
And we looked into the mechanism for that. We discovered that the enzyme that makes PEA, called NAEP-PLD, actually is suppressed by inflammatory stimuli. We discovered that the enzyme that destroys PEA, called NAAA, NAAA, is potentiated, is activated by inflammatory stimuli. So the whole biochemical mechanism makes sense. So what could be the physiological or physiopathological uh, significance? Well, if you think about it, one thing that we do not want is excessive or unnecessary inflammatory responses, right? We are constantly bombarded by a bunch of, uh, you know, viruses and bacteria, and then we get bruises and uh, our whole bunch of pro-inflammatory things in the environment. If we were to have a reaction to each and every one of them, we become like snowflakes, we will melt in no time. (laughs) So we actually do need to have, to set a threshold, right? Say, okay, guys, above this is bad, below this, it's okay, we can cope. And I think that what PA does is that. So the levels of PA in organs that are barriers to the external environment, like the skin, for example, or the the lungs are very high. And then when there is an inflammatory response, within minutes to maybe 10, 20, 30 minutes from the initiation, from the start of that inflammatory response, they start dropping. And they drop pretty quickly and they only recover after the response is gone. So when the tissue now is moving, toward resolution. So we can imagine these molecules as being, again, homeostatic. They're there. They secure that we don't respond inappropriately to inflammatory stimuli. But when we do need an inflammation, Mm. because inflammatory responses get rid of bacteria, right, and viruses, when we do need an inflammation, they get out of the way. They get out of the way and come back when it's... uh, time to now heal and rebuild the organ after the inflammatory response is is gone. This happens probably predominantly in uh, uh, in innate immune cells, particularly macrophages, maybe also in B lymphocytes. These are two cells that have a lot of PEA and also the enzymes that make make it and destroy it. But as far as we can tell, there is there are, there is a PA signaling system in every in, in most cells, if not all cells. In fact, PA is so ancient that we even find it in plants. Something similar to PA, not exactly PA, but similar to PA, where it is also involved in uh, in uh, the regulation of the response to to damage to tissue damage. So this is a very ancient, uh, um, evolutionally ancient mechanism to protect against uh, against damage. It's fascinating. So just to, to sort of reiterate that the PEA acts like a, a sort of a buffer to prevent us from overreacting to potentially benign stimuli, but then obviously once uh, a real threat does occur, we, we want to lower the guard and allow our inflammatory response to deal with it and then hopefully move into resolution. Yeah, so let me clarify one important point. Inflammation is a protective response. Yes. So inflammatory responses usually are good. And so they should not be, quote-unquote, cured. If we have an inflammatory response and we are otherwise healthy, yeah, we can reduce the pain a little bit with a little bit of a, you know, an aspirin or something. But at the end of the day, we don't want to interfere too much because otherwise the healing will be problematic. Hmm. But that is not the inflammation that most people are worried about. Most people are worried about this form of chronic inflammations, which now are inflammation gone awry. It's inflammation that is no longer serving a homeostatic physiological purpose. It's pathological in nature. We do not understand why some inflammations turn chronic. It's clearly a very, very important point very, very important issue. We don't fully understand that. But what we do know is that in those chronic inflammations, the levels of PA are also very low. And um, for example, 
a research group in Nottingham worked in England, uh, worked, um, measured the levels of PEA and OEA in the synovial fluid of uh, individuals with uh, osteoarthritis and rheumatoid, rheumatoid arthritis. And what they found is that the levels of PEA in, this, in these folks are very, very low. Other people right. have found something similar in other similar situations. We need more work on that. But the basic idea is that PEA may be under-regulated when uh, in certain conditions where it, it shouldn't. It should go back up. It should go back up as part of the normal response. So that's where I think now PEA becomes useful as a therapeutic because it, it comes to, uh, to fulfill or meet a need that is caused by the, this deficit in, in PEA levels that occurs in, uh, in chronic inflammatory conditions. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So um, let's now look at uh, clinical data on the administration of PEA. So um, even though it's only been more recently known here in Australia, in the US, in Canada, etc., it's been used, I think, in Italy. And um, so what's the, the, the data show on PEA for clinical conditions? Well, you know, PEA has been, you know, used in Europe, not just in Italy, but it's been used in Germany, in Holland, in France, oh, right. Spain. And uh, it is, um, it's been available there for maybe a, maybe over a decade. Uh, and there are quite a large number of clinical trials that have uh, not all perfect, um, but certainly quite a few, that all, most of them have gone into the direction of saying that uh, the PEA is analgesic in chronic pain conditions and anti-inflammatory. In fact, at one point, there was a company in the U.S. that put PEA in a in a medicine for um, atopic dermatitis, uh, still still available. And mm. uh, although this is not widely talked about, is uh, is quite effective in reducing atopic dermatitis uh, uh, symptoms when applied on the skin as a as a topical. So I think that the human uh, evidence, that uh, the clinical evidence that PEA is effective in uh, certain forms of pain and inflammation is quite, uh, is quite convincing and more is accumulating uh, year by year. The mechanism likewise is, I think, at this point, no longer disputed. It is activation of piper-alpha. Mm. But uh, the advantage of PEA over what could be a synthetic piper-alpha agonist is the fact that uh, it's a natural compound. And by that, I don't mean the natural compounds are necessarily good for you because they're not yes. necessarily are. But, but what I mean is that it's an, being an endogenous compound, the body has evolved mechanism, mechanisms to destroy it. So um, when an individual takes OE, uh, PEA, uh, you know, a portion of that is absorbed, it hits uh, whatever target organ, uh, probably innate immune cells or adaptive immune cells circulating that activates locally piper alpha. Piper alpha goes on and does its classical thing. Piper alpha is a classical anti-inflammatory receptor. It's been known for years for being a classical anti-inflammatory receptor, although it also regulates metabolism. It inhibits inflammation as well. And then PEA gets destroyed, right? It activates the receptor, but it, is, it, it finds, so to speak, next to the receptor, an enzyme like fatty acid hamadhydrolase, for example, which is uh, which cleaves it into palmitic acid and ethanolamine. Palmitic acid disappears, and so does ethanolamine. They don't do anything anymore. So, if instead of doing that, you give a drug that activates piper alpha, what happens is that there is no mechanism mm. in our body to get rid of that drug. It has to go to the liver, then it's metabolized in the liver, little by little, but it's present for a long period of time, usually for hours, sometimes for a full day. And that is a problem because people alpha nuclear receptors in general don't like to be activated that long because they're not used, they're not, they're not evolved to be activated that long. So when you start and activate 
PPAR alpha for a long period of time, that overactivation causes side effects. It uh, triggers compensatory mechanisms that are not good for you. So a synthetic PPAR alpha agonist may, could be more potent than PEA, more efficacious than PEA, but at the same time, a lot more toxic than PEA. Whereas PEA may not be amazingly perfect, it isn't, it has a lot of, it's, not, it's quite weak, it's difficult to, to sometimes to deliver to the right tissue, although there are now formulations that are making it a little easier, but it doesn't hurt. And it can be, and it can be helpful medically. So you see, uh, that is, in my opinion, the promise and the, the advantage of something like PEA, an endogenous molecule with an intrinsic uh, turn-off uh, switch. Yeah, yeah, I never thought about that. It's got its own bespoke metabolism, I suppose, rather than relying on generic uh, liver metabolism uh, to prevent the, the toxicity and also that concept of you don't want to turn on PPAR alpha constantly. Um, so just a couple of practical questions before we wrap up. Um, what sort of dosage um, are used in the trials and what sort of um, time frame do they start seeing a signal to receive benefits in the clinical trials or, or clinically, do you know, is it days, weeks, months before they start to see a, an effect? So when we talk about doses, unfortunately with PA, we have to be a little bit careful because if you go online on amazon.com, you will find mm -hmm. All sort of different PEAs, and uh, they're not all the same. So the molecule per se is the same, uh, but in the pharmaceutical business, there is something called formulation, which basically means how you prepare that molecule and how you make the molecule available for absorption. And um, some of the PEAs that you find out there have better formulation than others. But, and of course, if you have a very well-formulated PEA and a very poorly formulated PEA, the dosings won't be the same, right? For the well-formulated PEA, you need a lower dose. But by and large, PEA being fairly sensitive to enzymatic hydrolysis, as I said, you need, we need fairly high doses. So the doses that are typically used are between 600 and 800 milligrams per person per day. And that could be given in a single administration or in, or twice uh, 300 milligram and 300 milligrams. Right. And at these fairly high doses, PA is still very safe. And it has been shown in clinical trials to have some effectiveness. You um, you had also another question, but I forget now. Uh, the um, time to effect. Oh, the time to effect, yeah. Well, um, we are looking at a couple of weeks. Uh, for most conditions uh, for which PA is taken, like back pain or sciatica nerve pain, it takes between a week and a week and a half to start seeing e effects, which is actually perfectly normal. In, it is in general quite, mm. uh, 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 it takes in general that much. But for other conditions, the, the, for example, for migraine headache has, been, headache has been tested, found to be effective. I don't know how, you know, how strong those data are, but um, in, in those conditions, it's not something that, you know, it works a little bit faster. So you, you take it and for those of us for which it, for whom it works, it will, work immediately but okay. um, most studies have been done on chronic pain conditions and under those conditions it takes a week and maybe two weeks to see an effect uh, to see a sizable a sizable response sure and finally uh I believe they've done studies in conjunction with like opioid use etc other medications and pea What's the, the data showing like interactions with other sort of analgesics? I'm not familiar with any clinical studies there, but animal studies suggest what is called the synergism with potentiation, which 
essentially means if your opiate uh, has an effect of one, NPA alone has an effect of one. If you put them together, they have now an effect of four. So that's an effect right. that's greater than additive. One plus one is four. So that is in animal studies, however. So I, I, I wouldn't go ahead and extrapolate right away, but it's certainly really promising. Okay. Um, I think there've been studies on like patients with fibromyalgia and back pain using analgesics as well as PA and yeah, again, more of an additive effect. So obviously they'd have to, they'd have to, patients would have to monitor their, um, their use of the either or um, if there's a synergistic effect. All right. Well, uh, it's been absolutely fascinating, and um, I don't think if I read a hundred papers on PA, I'd be able to pull out all those insights that you you just um, provided with me and hopefully the listeners. Um, just to wrap up, uh, yeah, you've got so, so many insights. Probably more for the endocannabinoid system. Like, any suggestions on how to monitor, follow this? Any any I don't know materials, websites, because it seems like it's a minefield. And as I said, you've probably um, debunked a few myths that I had already in my mind on endocannabinoids and, but also PEA. Any any references or suggestions on how to continue monitoring this? Well, that, that's a lovely, lovely question. I wish I could give you a, an easy answer. Unfortunately, this is a very fast-paced scientific research world, and uh, uh, one thing about science that uh, I think the public uh, needs to appreciate is that uh, it. Uh, it works in a funny way. It's almost like a number game. We, uh, 100 scientists initially don't disagree, but eventually they settle on something. And so before we get to that kind of consensus, sometimes I think the public needs just to accept the fact that we are not there yet. It's a very, mm. uh, it's a very uh, imprecise initially uh, effort. But when we do arrive to a consensus, then we have a consensus. So that's why it's good to to uh, occasionally touch base and I'll be happy, you know, in another couple of years to talk to you oh, again right. uh, and see how, uh, how, we, how we're doing a couple of years from now. If there was a, a single site where we could put all this information, I can promise you that uh, uh, one day there will be one study showing something, another day another study showing something else. True. And uh, that can create confusion. Sometimes with science, it's good to take a little bit of perspective and uh, look at it from a distance and squint and see how the forest looks as opposed to the individual trees. Well said, yeah. I think with this um, interest and fascination around cannabis and obviously the interest in the endocannabinoid system and, and obviously people, patients who are in pain and suffering that maybe aren't getting um, you know, all the, the benefits from whatever therapy they're currently doing yep. as a probably a sense of desperation to to simplify this and um, look for a hero but yeah as you, you're right science takes a long time to evolve to before we have the, a real clear signal so maybe patience is, is the, the, um, patience the is take our message patience is important but i feel for those individuals who have of course conditions they're so so devastating but the good news about pea is that it's very safe it's a very safe compound if it doesn't work for you it doesn't work but the chances that, uh, you know, after two, three weeks of using it, uh, you find yourself with some side effects are very, very, very small. And um, so for someone who has chronic pain, I certainly recommend that. I always uh, tell my whoever listens to me uh, to say, OK, have you tried PEA? I, I usually recommend one or two sources that I found to be reliable and trustworthy. And, and I would say monitor everything, but do not be, and don't worry, because uh, in my experience, PA is a lot less toxic than um, very effective and useful medications like uh, nosterol anti-inflammatory drugs, for example, and SAIDs like ibuprofen or aspirin, which are terrific, terrific drugs, but they carry a lot of uh, side effects, gastrointestinal uh, being a renal, kidney being, being well-known ones. Uh, and the same is not true for PEA. It may not be as effective as ibuprofen, but is uh, certainly a lot less toxic than ibuprofen is. Brilliant. Well, that gives, us, uh, well, gives me plenty of optimism, and I'm, I'm sure the listeners as well. 
Uh, Professor Pimeli, I really, really appreciate your time. It's been fantastic. As I said, I've got many insights that I would never get just from reading um, papers, etc. So I appreciate your time, and I think I will um, uh, approach you and nag you in a couple of years' time for an update. <laughs> With pleasure, if I'm still around. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Nathan. That was lovely. And a uh, good uh, rest of the day to you guys down in uh, Down Under. Thank you. <laughs> bye, bye, bye. For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.